Hello there, and welcome to The Road to Nicaea, Christ, Creed, and Controversy in the Turbulent Fourth Century, part of the Earth and Altar Podcast Network. Episode 5, Not a Chill Emperor, Diocletian and the Transformation of the Roman Empire. By this point in the story, you may be able to see how the church was ready for the events of the Nicene Creed. It had a substantial number of adherents throughout the empire, it had a defined episcopal power structure for councils to be possible, and enough challenges to that power structure for councils to be necessary, and it had geniuses expositing the Trinity in ways broad enough that rival schools of thought could all lay claim to the same traditions of interpretation. The Roman Empire, on the other hand, was not ready for the Council of Nicaea. It was still smack dab in the middle of that period historians refer to as the Crisis of the Third Century. It's never a good thing when historians refer to your time period as a crisis, but things were so bad that I doubt many of the Romans of the time would have protested too much. There were severe plagues and famines that decimated the Roman population. All of that was driven by the political instability of the Roman imperial hierarchy, which had all the spirit of cooperation and goodwill as the characters in Game of Thrones, all the clarity and orderliness of Lost, and the average emperor had all the longevity of a red-shirt-wearing Star Trek crew member who had just beamed down to the set of The Walking Dead with a nuclear warhead detonating in the background for good measure. Something had to change if the empire was to stay together. And, in fact, something did change. The Roman Empire of the 4th century was a period of stability and even some growth that would have seemed unimaginable to the denizens of the 3rd century. How did we get from all that chaos to a more or less orderly empire ready to hold church councils in peace? The biggest part of that answer comes down to one man, the Emperor Diocletian. Diocletian was something of a rags-to-riches story in Rome. He was born in the Roman province of Dalmatia, probably in modern-day Croatia. His parents were not particularly well-to-do. His father was probably either a scribe or a freedman. But Diocletian had much bigger dreams, and he would attain them. He served in the army, which, as you all know from previous episodes, was effectively the group that decided who the next emperor would be. So it behooved all aspiring politicians, no matter what their desired role, to get in good with their armor-wearing, pointy-sword-holding constituents. Diocletian was apparently a gifted commander, because he rose through the ranks until he became the head of an elite cavalry force that served at the emperor's side. And this is how his ascent to the imperial title began. His ascent tells us a lot about the kind of emperor Diocletian would be. Diocletian was with the previous emperor, a guy named Numerian, on a military expedition in Persia, when Numerian was killed under suspicious circumstances. Diocletian was hailed by his troops as the new emperor, at which point he raised his sword to the sun, swore an oath to avenge Numerian's death, blamed that death on a guy named Aper, who had been his main rival for the imperial title, and then stabbed him to death on the spot. 
Diocletian was not what you'd call a chill emperor. Now, in fairness to him, Diocletian may not have been completely cynical to suspect Aper of Numerian's death. Aper was the head of the Praetorian Guard, which was a special unit dedicated to the emperor's safety, and a group that had had a major hand in elevating and eliminating emperors over the years. So of all the likely suspects, Aper was probably high on the list. Still, though, Diocletian executed his main political rival without a trial, without really any evidence, and without any hesitation. The message was clear. I am in charge, I am going to set things right, and I am going to bulldoze anyone who gets in my way. First on Diocletian's list for setting things right was his mission to reinforce that most essential Roman virtue, being super-organized. He even streamlined his own name. He had been born Diocles, a common enough name in his hometown, but not a very Latin-sounding name. So he changed it to Diocletian. No need to let pronunciation problems get in the way of ruling efficiently, no sir. He then embarked on a total reorganization of the empire's bureaucracy. Earlier emperors had governed through a council in which decisions were made through a collaboration of the emperor, the senate, and the army. At least, that's how it worked in theory. In practice, the emperor made the decisions that were then backed up by the army, and the senate wisely chose to rubber stamp the decisions that all the guys with the very sharp swords had just proclaimed. Diocletian disbanded this council and instead created a system of various departments, each with authority over a different area of government, legal affairs, finances, and so on. To help each department carry out its work, Diocletian also roughly doubled the number of provinces in the Roman Empire. Each province had its own dedicated administrative staff to oversee matters in that province. Diocletian also created another, larger administrative unit called the Diocese, made up of several provinces and meant to cover a large but still kind of manageable territory in the Roman Empire. Each diocese was governed by a leader called a vicar, who reported to the emperor's right-hand official. Now if the word diocese sounds familiar to you, there's a reason for that. Many denominations of Christianity still use the diocese as their basic unit of organization, Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, Anglicanism, some branches of Lutheranism, the Church of God in Christ, and more. Rather than a vicar, these religious dioceses are usually headed by a bishop, but the basic organizational idea is the same. Diocletian must also have been the patron emperor of accountants, because he revolutionized the Roman Empire's tax codes. During the crisis of the 3rd century, like everything else, taxation was a hot mess. Remember when I said that the Roman Empire had a problem paying its soldiers? Well, that was partly because the empire had stopped taxing people based on money. The reason for this was because inflation was so out of control that even the government couldn't be sure if the money it was collecting was worth anything or not. Which is never really a good sign. So they had moved to in-kind taxation, which is a fancy name for saying that they took a portion of whatever the people in an area were making and redistributed that fact to the soldiers. 
Now, if you overlook the fact that this system didn't work at all, it worked pretty well. But most everyone was unwilling to overlook this fact. The citizens hated it because they never knew when soldiers were going to march through and require them to pay their tax. The soldiers hated it because you never knew what you were going to get. I mean, if you were in a territory that specialized in fine fabrics, great, but your taxes didn't really help you to, you know, eat. And since inflation was so bad, it was really hard to sell those goods for food. So everybody hated this system. Diocletian replaced it all with a surprisingly modern system of taxation. Every single piece of imperial territory was assessed based on its size, what it produced, and the number of people living there. Once he knew how much productivity each bit of land had, Diocletian assigned a tax in cash on the basis of that productivity. Taxes were due in full on September 1st, not whenever the soldiers happened to come through, and the newly reorganized government would collect the taxes and distribute them appropriately. Diocletian may not have been a chill emperor, but he was a massive nerd. But not all of Diocletian's organizational schemes played out as well as he would have hoped. Inflation was a constant concern during his reign, as it had been in years before. As most economists today would have ruefully predicted, none of his attempts to centrally plan his economy played out as well as his administrative reforms. Those central planning attempts included an edict in which Diocletian attempted to just flat-out set the maximum prices of staple goods with a capital penalty for violations. That's right. Diocletian actually said, you may only charge this much for a loaf of bread, and if you charge more, I am going to cut your head off. Again, Diocletian was not a chill emperor. But amazingly, most merchants reacted to this threat of death by just ignoring it. Which is a bold thing to do when your life is on the line. But the merchants knew that Diocletian did not have the manpower or institutional will to enforce his decree. And by and large, they were right. They went largely unpunished. Now, despite that rather massive failure, it's worth pausing just for a second to notice Diocletian's organizational genius. Many of the facets of modern governance that we take for granted, like having separate departments for different functions, or multiple layers of regional governance, are either invented by Diocletian or given their mostly modern form under his administration. Even when he failed, as he did against inflation, he failed fighting against perennial problems that even modern states struggle to control, as we are all learning several years into the COVID-19 pandemic. To confront such modern-sounding problems in a 4th century empire is itself a colossal achievement. Love him or hate him, and there are plenty of people who did both, there is no denying that Diocletian put the empire on firmer ground and did much to transform the chaotic 3rd century into the merely turbulent fourth. But nowhere is his organizational genius more evident than in the way that Diocletian rebuilt the very office of the Roman emperor. He decided that one emperor was simply not enough anymore, and so he expanded his imperial office by naming three other men to be co-emperors with him. Now this system is referred to by various names, mostly the Imperial College, 
or the Tetrarchy. We are going to be calling it the Tetrarchy for two very important historical reasons. The first is that it is the more common name in the scholarly literature, and I want you to be well equipped if you decide to do some more reading after this podcast. And second, as you are now familiar, Tetrarchy is simply a much more fun word for me to say. So here is how the Tetrarchy worked. Diocletian split the empire in half between east and west, and a pair of emperors were assigned to each half. Each pair consisted of a senior emperor called the Augustus, and a junior emperor called the Caesar. Caesars could command militaries, make judicial rulings, and generally enforce the existing order of the empire. And Augustus had the power to make laws, set policy for the Caesars, and crucially, to appoint new emperors to the imperial college. When an Augustus died or retired, his Caesar would succeed him as the new Augustus. Interestingly, Diocletian chose to reign as the Augustus of the East, not the West, indicating the increasing dominance of the Roman East and the relative decline in influence of Rome itself. The Tetrarchy was designed to solve several problems. First, it made the death of a single emperor much less destabilizing than it had been before. If an Augustus died, there was a ready-made successor waiting in the wings to take over. If a Caesar died, then an Augustus would just name a new one. In either case, a disastrous leadership vacuum was avoided, a vacuum that had happened so often during the crisis of the 3rd century. Second, splitting up the governance of the empire reduced the workload on each individual emperor, allowing for better governance of each province. Finally, by defining clear lines of succession, the Tetrarchy significantly reduced succession intrigues. If an Augustus died in suspicious circumstances, there was one clear winner, his Caesar. This meant that others had substantially less incentive to kill an Augustus, and meant that any Caesar with murderous intent would immediately become a person of interest in the case. Diocletian also surrounded the Tetrarchy in the aura of Roman mythology. The two Augusti styled themselves after the Roman gods Jupiter and Hercules, respectively, and their Caesars followed suit. In some cases, the members of the Tetrarchy would even claim literal descent from a god. And Diocletian also appears to have imported some extra court ceremonies from Persia into the Roman imperial court. Supplicants were expected to prostrate themselves before Diocletian. He took the title of Dominus, meaning Lord, and he continued the Roman practice of referring to everything the emperor did as sacred or divine. In short, he wanted to build up an aura of mystique around the emperors, partly so that people might actually listen to them instead of trying to kill them, and partly to further enhance his authority over his bleeding, fractured empire. There would be four emperors now, not one, and they were all to be treated as gods on earth. Did it work? Did Diocletian's organizational genius conquer the age-old problem of imperial succession intrigue? Did Caesars aspiring to power set aside their assassination plots and happily frolic in the fields with their Augusti, weaving friendship bracelets and doing trust falls? <laughs> of course not. Oh no, Diocletian's tetrarchic design was not as stable as he imagined, and it would collapse quickly once he left the world stage. But that is for another episode. For now... All you need to know is that by the dawn of the 4th century, there were four emperors, not one, sharing power, maneuvering for influence, 
and shaping the direction of an empire that finally knew some measure of stability. Of course, the main person shaping imperial policy was Diocletian himself, who reigned as the senior of the two Augusti and was the central power in the empire. Despite Diocletian's organizational reforms, he reigned mostly as a cultural conservative. In Diocletian's mind, the big problem was that the Roman Empire had gotten away from the traditional Roman virtues that had made them great. What the empire needed was stability and return to those traditions, and Diocletian was there to provide both. That conservatism applied to religion as well. So you can imagine that his attitude towards Christianity, this newfangled anti-Roman pantheon faith, was cold at the best of times. And on February 23rd, 303, Diocletian turned from cold to murderous. He ordered that the church in Nicomedia, his imperial capital, be destroyed, its Bibles burned, and its money confiscated and added to the imperial treasury. The next day, he ordered that the same be done to churches across the empire, and forbade Christians from worshipping together. The following years would come to be known to the church as the Great Persecution, one of the most frightening and painful times in its 300 years of history. Why did Diocletian decide to persecute the church in this way? The short answer, as you have heard by now, is that we don't know for sure. While Diocletian was not a fan of Christianity from the beginning, he had grudgingly tolerated it for the first 18 years of his reign. Why did he suddenly abandon tolerance for persecution? There are several possible explanations. One is that Diocletian didn't actually change because he didn't come up with the idea for the Great Persecution. Some contemporary Christian sources allege that it was Diocletian's Caesar, a man named Galerius, who masterminded the persecution and obtained Diocletian's support. However, there are also reasons for thinking that Diocletian may have been sympathetic to this sort of a persecution. He had already enforced a similar decree against the Manichaeans, another new religious group in the Roman Empire. In fact, in that persecution, Diocletian ordered that any Manichaean who refused to renounce their faith should be killed. Again, Diocletian was not a chill emperor. We also know that Christians had been blamed for interfering in traditional Roman religious rites. Shortly before the Great Persecution, Diocletian brought in some Roman religious experts to perform a divination ritual in his palace. You know, a little peek into the future to let the emperor know what he should be worried about. The ritual failed. The priests were unable to foretell anything about the future. This was blamed on some Christian servants who had allegedly made the sign of the cross during the ritual and thus ruined it. So whatever Galerius might have said or initiated, the notion of persecuting religious deviance was already firmly established in Diocletian's mind when the persecution began. Christians were around, they were not doing their civic duty, and they were messing up the good traditional Romans who were attempting to do that civic duty. Now, what was the extent of persecution during this part of Diocletian's reign? Well, it varied quite a bit. The emperors in the West did not share Diocletian and Galerius's appetite for enforcing religious conformity, and so the Great Persecution was never really enacted in the western half of the empire. 
Even in the East, persecution was sporadic and inconsistent, depending mostly upon the proclivities of local administrators. However, when persecution happened, it was severe. Many clergy were mutilated, tortured, and killed during it. These scenes of torture were so intense that most Roman pagans were disgusted by them, and Galerius would eventually rescind the edict mandating the great persecution entirely after nine bloody, terrifying years. The Great Persecution is a pretty good example of how the persecution of Christians happened in late ancient Rome. There are two myths you often hear about this. The first is that Christians were persecuted everywhere all the time, and that being a believer came with a 50% risk of being fed to lions in the Colosseum. This is simply not true. As we've talked about on other episodes, for most of its history, Christianity was simply too small and inconsequential to attract the ruler's systematic attention. Of course, Christianity was illegal in the empire because Christianity forbade its adherents from making the prescribed sacrifices to the emperor. However, most administrators saw the Christians as a small band of odd dissidents who were not worth the time and trouble of persecuting. But most does not mean all. And when administrators or even emperors decided to persecute Christians, they had ready-made legal pretexts for doing so. And that explodes the second myth, which is that Christians were never persecuted and made up or exaggerated all these stories of suffering. As we have seen, when persecution happened, it was often quite severe. And even Christians who were never arrested or tortured lived with the constant fear that they could be. They were only one wrong imperial decision away from that fate. And we should not underestimate the psychological stress, even the trauma, that can be caused by holding a criminal faith. As a result, the Great Persecution made a profound impact on the Church. Some Christians thought that it pretended the Second Coming and thought Diocletian was the Antichrist for his persecution of the faithful. Everywhere, it forced Christians to decide just how much they were willing to sacrifice for their faith in Jesus of Nazareth. Many of them chose to pay the ultimate price. Many others decided to give in, to hand over their precious Bibles, insincerely renounce their faith, and live in the new world Diocletian had wrought. The tensions between these two groups will dramatically change the landscape of the 4th century church. But before we move on to the rest of the story of the 4th century church, what happened to Diocletian? How did this earth-shattering, persecutorial, and profoundly committed emperor end his days on earth? By farming cabbages. I am not pulling your leg. After almost 30 years as the most powerful man in the Roman Empire, Diocletian left it all behind, retiring in tandem with his co-Augustus in the West. He handed the reins of power to his Caesar, Galerius, and retired to life back home in his country palace, farming cabbages and avoiding further entanglements with politics, with mixed success. This is not quite as insane a life goal as it might sound to you. Remember that Diocletian was a conservative who thought that traditional Roman values would restore the empire's glory and stability. 
Now, one of the most revered figures in Roman politics was a guy named Cincinnatus, the same guy that the city of Cincinnati, Ohio, is named after. Cincinnatus was a patrician of the Republic approximately 500 BC. Now, the story goes that he was named dictator of Rome in the face of a severe military crisis, was given all power with no checks and balances in order to meet the threat of an invading army. Now, Cincinnatus proved more than adequate to the task at hand and trounced the invading army at Rome's gates in a mere 16 days. Riding high on the public adoration and with the military and state under his full command, Cincinnatus retired. Right back to his farm, gave up all that power to assume the life of a citizen. Then, a bit later, his citizens again called on him to assume the mantle of dictatorship in the face of a second crisis. Again, Cincinnatus solved it brilliantly and again retired to his farm. It's probable that Diocletian was thinking about his legacy and desired to cast himself in the same mold as this legendary hero, as a citizen servant who rose to meet the task at hand and then resigned power instead of clinging to it. Now, as I said, Diocletian's attempts to stay out of future politics met with mixed success, and his successors would occasionally turn to him for advice, and occasionally for moral authority in resolving arguments among the Tetrarchy. But later, when a crowd begged Diocletian to return to power and solve all the problems that had arisen, he simply replied, If you could show the cabbage that I planted with my own hands to your emperor, he definitely wouldn't dare suggest that I replace the peace and happiness of this place with the storms of a never-satisfied greed. In his retirement, Diocletian had become the most unlikely thing of all, a chill emperor. And that is where we must leave Diocletian. For while he may have been content to spend the remainder of his life among the cabbage fields, our story draws us back into the world he made, a Roman Empire delivered from a half-century of infighting, intrigue, and unrest, a newly streamlined administrative system that made governance far more effective, a not-entirely-stable system of imperial succession, and a wounded, persecuted church still reeling from the wounds it had suffered. It is now time to turn again to that church. Who were these 4th century Christians whose deeds would echo throughout history? What did they believe about God, the world, and how Jesus had reconciled the two? Join me next time as we take a look at how the church, freshly stained with the blood of its martyrs, fought over and rejoiced in the nature of the God for whom so many of their co-religionists had died. To some of them, all these events seemed like the world's last days. To us, however, they are but one more step along the road to Nicaea. This is an Earth and Alter Podcast Network production. For more podcasts and weekly articles, visit us at earthandaltermag.com. Dot com.